Greetings, LARP book clubbers and Radio Hour listeners. My name is Boris Drelouk, and I'm LARP's editor-in-chief. Today, I am joined by our longtime poetry editor and brilliant poet in her own right, Kelly Siskel. And together, we have the honor of interviewing Natalie Diaz, one of the most vital poetic voices in our literary landscape. Raised in Fort Mojave Indian Village in Needles, California, educated at Old Dominion University in Virginia, and now based in Mojave Valley, Arizona, Natalie is the author of the collection When My Brother Was an Aztec, which was a 2012 Lannan Literary Selection and won an American Book Award the following year. Her newest collection, Postcolonial Love Poem, published by Grey Wolf Press, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize this year. Throughout her work, she explores, with a mix of lyrical deftness and piercing clarity, and sometimes with biting humor, the beauty and heartbreak of her own experience as a Latina and Mojave American, as well as the broader tragedies and contradictions of life in the U.S. and in its global shadow. Her book is full of wounds and vulnerabilities, yet it testifies to resilience. As she writes in one poem, America's thirst tried to drink us away, and here we still are. Thank you, Natalie, for making time to meet with us. Yeah, gracias for having me. Uh, It's good to be here. I wanted to start with a word that Boris ended on from one of your poems, Thirst, and also mention the line in the title poem, I Learned Drink in a Country of Drought. And I was wondering if you could talk about the reach of the word thirst in the collection and why it figures so prominently in the poems. That's a great question. It's a very generous question to be in. Because I think as much as I think about water, it's a doorway that I haven't walked through in terms of like the reach of thirst. I mean, I think a lot of it in relationship to the body. You know, I grew up in the desert, so I understand the importance of water, not just water outside the body, but water inside the body. It's almost like a kind of, it's a sensuality that you have, you know, to know, even if I was going to be out in the 120 degree heat, to know I needed a certain amount of water in my body as I did that, you know, whether I was a child playing in the desert or going for a walk versus like actually going out to what other people might call hike, but what we're just, you know, being out in our land and the kinds of water you would need there. I think I'm also very much thinking about just the literal thirst and how water has been so weaponized. And I'm near the U.S.-Mexico border and there is a I don't even know if it's a political process or what we would call it, but it's called prevention through deterrence. And what it's done is it's closed a certain amount of ports of entries to create a strip of the desert that is one of the most harshest in the desert, the Sonoran Desert. And it's designed so that they say it's designed so that people will be deterred from crossing there because they know how harsh the conditions are. Whereas what it does is it kills people. Because in order to be able to cross that desert, there's heat, there's hypothermia in the evening, there's deficit of water. And we have things like Border Patrol slashing water jugs, things like that. So there's the very, really, the very literal sense of water. You know, right now, the Colorado River is the most endangered river in the United States. The entire Southwest, including up into California, Utah. They can't subsist. They won't survive without our water. And yet our reservoir is at the lowest it's ever been. So there are those very real water concerns. And then I think there's also a kind of desire I'm wondering about, you know, like what has that made of my imagination? What has that made of my relationship with this country, with the ways we consume product, or even the ways that we learn certain kinds of tendernesses? You know, my imagination was very much shaped here. And I think one way to think about water is that it is a way of desire. 
I love the part of your answer dealing with the bare physicality of thirst and the bare physicality of water. And that actually brings up something I wanted to address. I find that for all the thirst in the book, there's also, you know, an abundance of fluidity in its metaphorical sense. And a lot of that is wrapped up in language of the body and of motion. You have the silvered percussion of hips like bells, a basketball shot that's like an arc made of sky. Could you talk a little bit about the physicality of your poems and the importance of the body in them and perhaps about how your career in basketball contributed to or related to your development as a poet? Yeah, I think they're very much related. When I think about poetry, it is still very physical. It's very much rooted in my body. I think it's not unlike my relationship to basketball. I've talked about that. And something interesting is that I had never thought about it. I I kind of fell into poetry in some ways. I was mostly an athlete and some folks gave me a chance to write some poems and taught me how to read them. And suddenly here I am. But I was in a conversation with Joy Harjo once and I had never really sat down with an elder to talk about poetry. I have plenty of conversations with my elders at home, but never about poetry. But she and I were sitting there and she said, you know, it makes sense that you played basketball because when I read your poems, she said, I feel the muscles. And she goes, I feel my muscles. And she said, I kind of rock with the poems. And so that that was something that I began to really think about. And it reflected a little bit of the ways that I write. Like when I write, I'm moving my hands a lot. I'm very textural. I think a really lucky sensuality is that, you know, anyone who's dribbled a basketball, especially if you've dribbled on a hardwood floor, but also if you've just dribbled a rubber basketball out in the concrete or on the blacktop, there's a noise that when the ball hits the ground, we can't see it, but the ball actually kind of changes shape. When it hits that ground, like it's kind of a sound, but it's also the physicality of the air moving in the ball, but outside of the ball. And then there's the, like, when it comes back to your hand, it's like, it almost brushes your hand, but you also feel it. So there's this, I think some people might call it synesthesia, but to me, it's just our bodies having many sensualities. But there's something about that that experience, that sensual experience that is a lot like finding words in poetry. I feel like I'm almost pulling them out of the air sometimes, you know, like when I'm playing with verbs on the page, I'm trying to like imagine like, what does my body look like or feel like or sound like while I'm doing that? So that feels like something that's just very innate in me is that I need things to be physical. I need, I need resistance. It's strange because I'm really not comfortable with like confrontation, but I love tension. I wish we were all comfortable with tension and it didn't have to turn into a confrontation, but that tension could be just the natural state of what it means for two or more different forms of life trying to be within proximity to one another. But I really appreciate too you mentioning the word abundance, because I think it's not a word that's offered often to the desert. And it's definitely not a word that's offered often to to natives, to Mexicans or Latinas or Latinx people, even to queer people. I think, you know, abundance is related to the idea of excess. However, I think abundance, it's a more generous word because it also gives you the option of not overdoing it. It's more about possibility, I think, or at least the way that I receive that word that you just said is that it's about the possibility to bloom but also the possibility to find things beyond the bloom that might not be recognizable as pleasure or love or desire. And it doesn't have to be excess slash waste. There's a part in Sarah Haley's No Mercy Here book, which is really incredible. And she's imagining there were three young Black women 
who were like taken in by the police and a couple of them put on the chain gang because they broke flower pots. And she had looked at this case. And so she tells you about it factually, but then there's a part afterward where she uses the word perhaps in such an incredible way. And she says, I'm paraphrasing very surfacely now, but it's like, perhaps they danced when they did it. Perhaps they were laughing. There's something that's very important to me about the ways we look at abundance and excess, especially in terms of the body, because I think pleasure is a word we need to think about more often, not only as a kind of sexuality or being related to that. I think if we gave ourselves more opportunities to be in pleasure or pleasureful, yeah, I think that's what any life, whether it's a plant or an animal or a stone or our human bodies, like what else should they be but toward pleasure? Yeah, I appreciate you using that word and just kind of offering it today. You mentioned the possibility to bloom, and that was reminding me of something that jumps out at the reader so strongly in this collection, which is the recursiveness of certain images, which feels so exciting. You know, at one, because you're sad when a poem ends when you read this collection, and you know that it's going to be reincarnated in some way, you're going to get some of that language back. It's not ending with the final line. I wondered if you could talk about why or how you make imagery so recursive in this collection and whether that feels something essential to bookmaking for you or whether that's something that is always on your mind, even when you're writing an individual poem without an awareness of where it might fall in a larger work. I think a lot about repetition and what it means. And I think a lot about the term anaphora that I feel like was shoved down all of our throats if we had any poetic training is anaphora And the idea that it's a call back to, I think something I wonder a lot about, again, is that, Boris, back to your question about physicality. And I think like physicality, it's a kind of energy. It's a momentum. And that's how language works for me. It's very much about momentum. Even silence, I think, is a kind of, to listen is to hold and to carry, even if it's unknown or even if there's no understanding there yet. And I think a lot about, Like, for example, like hips, hips and hips and hips, hips for days in the book. And that's like a body part that feels so important to me. One, because I had I had a great grandmother who I was very close to who was a double amputee. So I mostly knew her. I mostly knew her hips, you know, and I never knew her with legs. And she was the most tender, but also the strongest and roughest person I knew. And I used to help her. And at that time, like the way you took insulin was very different than some of the ways you take it now. I just always had my hands on her hips or when I laid next to her, like, I mean, I think that that's an image of love and desire that I didn't realize until the image continued to occur and occur and occur again and again. And I think the same thing, like, for example, with light, I talk with my students a lot about lexicons that you know, a lexicon, and I mean that different than kind of linguistic elicitation, but the lexicon being the physical body of language that you use and that we each come from a different lexicon of language. So for example, the hip is also important in basketball. It's like the place of resistance, you know, hand check, hip check. And then for example, light is one of my lexicons. And I was intent on just riddling the book with light. I wanted to open it up to my desert. And I also wanted to open up some of the dark corners that people were drawn to in the first book when my brother was an Aztec. I wanted to kind of open that up 
And so even though the brother who was made largely of shadow and violence in the first book, I wanted people to not forget the love and tenderness there. So I felt like I needed to like fling open the windows and fling open the doors and let that light come in to show that these things happen and, or violence happens and, and we still move within it. You know, we make love within it. We eat within it. And so for me, I guess part of that repetition, part of coming back to me feels like brand new origins. I think that's the challenge I give myself. It's the game or the puzzle or that that little, I guess maybe I do need a little bit of competition. And I think a lot about Francis Bacon and his notion of saying like he wanted each image to obliterate the one that came before it. And I think that's rather than try to accumulate, that's what I'm trying to do is I want, I want the next word to be new again or to be happening in a way that that I think language does, like how lucky that I get to say the next word and then the next word, and maybe it becomes a line or a sentence. So those things are, I think, important to me in relationship to what is repetition? Can I make it new again? Can it be new to me? And that I think so often about the unknown at the end of a sentence or a line, it's still unbelievable to me that I can write a sentence or I'm talking to you right now and there's a word four words away that I have no idea I'm going to say and yet somehow I arrive to it. It feels extremely lucky. And then the last thing I'll just say is about that reiteration. There's probably a lot more of the reiteration or the recursiveness or the repetitiveness than people might even notice of the image itself because I work so much in etymology and so I follow words back to their early beginnings. I set them next to Mojave words and follow those Mojave words back to their early pieces. And so in some ways, the poem that happens on the top is like part of this massive root system. And sometimes there'll be a poem that comes back to just one or two words that I just spun around for months or sometimes even a year that feel really lucky. That was a long answer, but it's an exciting answer because I feel like I'm still learning so much about repetition and about what the image is. And maybe like a kind of terrible analogy is like, it's almost like what will happen at the end of whatever end I come to when I have all of these images and like they come together, like some sort of transformer or something. And like, what will that mean of, of whatever I've done or whoever I've been? Well, thank you for that, Natalie. We actually want to ask you to read a poem if you're willing. And the poem that we have in mind, I think, holds that balance between light and darkness just perfectly. And it's My Brother, My Wound, if you're willing to share that with us. Yeah, it would be my luck. I'm glad you asked me to read this poem because I feel like this poem came from the first book. And in a way, it came just after it, but it was still very much trying to find the momentum or the movement from the first book and how to love that body of that brother better because I felt like in some ways I failed to hold that brother as tenderly as I wanted to. And so this poem to me was really an opening or momentum to putting my body at stake in a very different way. And so it just feels lucky to share it here. My brother, my wound. He was calling in the bulls from the street. They came like a dark river, a flood of chest and hoof, everything moving under splinter, hooked their horns through the walls, light hummed the holes like yellow jackets. My mouth was a nest torn empty. Then 
he was at the table, then in the pig's jaws, he was hungry, he was stopped, he was bad apple, he was choking. So I punched my fists against his stomach. Mars flew out and broke open or bloomed. How many small red eyes shut in that husk? He said, look, look, and they did. He said, lift up your shirt, and I did. He slid his fork between my ribs. Yes, he sang, a Jesus side wound. It wouldn't stop bleeding. He reached inside and turned on the lamp. I never knew I was also a lamp until the light fell out of me, dripped down my thigh, flew up in me, caught in my throat like a canary. Canaries really means dogs, he said. He put on his shoes. You started this with your mouth, he pointed. Where are you going, I asked. To ride the Ferris wheel, he answered, and climbed inside me like a window. Thank you very much. One question that comes up for me time and again as I read and reread this book is you talk about tension and holding bodies in tension, holding references in tension. And one of the things I find to be in great balance in this book are varieties of origin stories, traditional storytelling, traditions ranging from the ancient Greek world to the biblical story of Noah's Ark to the beliefs surrounding Aztec ball games. Could you tell us a little bit about how you hold all of those traditions in balance and what it means to you to embed and interweave these stories in your work? I mean, I was raised Catholic for one, and I was also raised Mojave, and I'm Akamal Atam. And I guess my Catholicism was very like Indio. So it was, I've said this kind of anecdote before, but my father would always say, yeah, I know, I know how bad whatever you or your siblings, what you've done is, but based on like which religion you tilt toward, (laughs) you know, like he knows like how badly our discretion was or how much we need to be forgiven for based on where we situate. But I guess I think a lot about that word origin because it's related to, to Oriri or rising. So I feel like as well, it's a very, I'll use this kind of blanket term because I don't know if this is the right term, but there's a very kind of Western, or at least like you're saying, like Judeo-Christian, even though, I mean, Lazarus, Jesus, they were allowed to rise from the dead, but everyone else only gets one origin in this world from there on. But I think it's so important to have many risings and to be, again, that's part of being alongside is that why shouldn't my belief systems be multiple, you know, be myriad? Why shouldn't I be with and alongside and a little bit riverine when it comes to trying to make sense of how I can be a living being in this world? And so it felt very easy to dip in and out of some of these stories and traditions. I also think I grew up hearing that my traditional, my Mojave stories were mythologies. I would be in my high school or in my junior high and they would say, well, we're going to show you this one paragraph about the Mojave creation myth. And so there was a way that it was just really easy to flip and blur and to say like, the story will be whichever I rise into or rise from. And so there's always a lot of Christian iconography in my work because I grew up with it. I'm fascinated with the Jesus side wound, with the doubting Thomas, with all of these things. 
And yet I feel like I have the one, I have the, I feel compelled to move in and out of them because they feel surreal to me, even though my stories have been called surreal. Like, I mean, look at these things that happen in the Bible. They're the wildest stories, you know, as they're unbelievable. And yet they've become the foundation for an entire way of viewing other people. I think as well, something that I think a lot about with these stories is how land relates to them. I think, you know, like, especially with Skinlight, thinking about the ball game, just what an incredible feat of the human body that was and how related it was to imagining where we go next or what happens to the sun when it disappears. And and that the body and the land were so united and so held together. And so I feel like in some ways, I'm always questioning that and trying to pull these, these mythologies or these origin stories apart a little bit to make space for myself in them or other people, you know, like me in them. I think the other thing that I hold together a lot is origin and migration. And to me, like those things can't be separated is that every time we migrate into someone else's story or through people's books of poems or whether that's prose or poetry, we have a new origin when we leave it. We're a little bit changed. We're a little bit different. Our questions have a a different shape. And so it feels really important to me to be able to migrate through these languages, through these words, through these different stories. You've been listening to a special episode of the LARB Radio Hour, including a conversation between the LARB Book Club and poet Natalie Diaz about Diaz's latest collection, Postcolonial Love Poem. We'll return to that conversation in just a minute, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have Dodie Bellamy on the line. Dodie is the author most recently of an essay collection called Bereaved, and she's here to give us a book recommendation. Well, I would recommend what I've come across recently is Marlon Haushofer's The Wall. And I watched the movie version on Mubi, and I somehow managed to get a copy of the book a while back. I was looking at a list of books at the beginning of COVID about people who are isolated, you know, for lockdown. And and I had thought about doing a whole series of readings about women alone. I thought of rereading Krista Wolf's Accident, for instance. Are you familiar with that book? You know, where the Chernobyls happen and this woman alone in the woods. And the wall is this woman alone in the woods. And there's this like glass or plastic dome around her and she can't get out. And she's like, totally isolated and so I really was intrigued by the movie so but the of course the book is much better and gets much more into the interiority and the psychology of this woman alone so I I I think it's a really beautiful book and it certainly speaks to our sense of social isolation our sense of grief I just love it's like such an over-the-top metaphor right but it's just never really pinned down like what it means. So we can kind of bring our own energy to it and it can kind of touch whatever parts of us need touching. Do you know if it was written any time around when the wall between East and West Germany went up or is it completely separate? It was 1963. Oh, wow. So, 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you always have to talk about that because I did a podcast where I was being interviewed, I guess it was a Zoom thing, about Petzl, the German director. And that was another thing about him. Like I would watch a movie that would seem to be about one thing and then I read about it and the whole thing is about the wall and the divide between the East and the West Germany. And and as a, an American who knows nothing about the world, it was totally beyond my head, right? And then I feel like <laughs> an idiot, but then it kind of, I like that the movie could exist on both levels, right? Exactly. Can you tell us the name of the book and the author again? The Wall by Marlene Haushofer, and I'm sure I'm destroying her name. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dodie. Okay. That was Dodie Bellamy. Her new book is called Bereaved. We now return to a special conversation between the Lar Book Club and poet Natalie Diaz about Diaz's latest collection, Postcolonial Love Poem. I want to um, go back to the brother, but also continue talking about the surreality of origin stories. One of my favorite poems was It Was the Animals. And I'm about to ask, I feel like a taboo question, which is to ask a poet to explain a line of poetry. But I just, if not explain it, I just want to hear more about this moment when the speaker says it was the animals, the animals I could not take. Because as you said earlier, and I noticed in the collection, the brother seems to open the speaker into a window, into a lamp. There seems to be this incredible ability to stay open in these interactions. And then this feels like this delineation, this moment of impossibility, the animals I could not take. I just wondered if you could speak more to that line. It was so impactful. Yeah, I appreciate that question. And I I don't mind talking. I mean, I wrote it, right? I should be willing to, to have a conversation about it. And I mean... I don't know. I love language. I love wondering how it works. Um, but your question also is is really generous, and it it's a generosity. I think of curiosity, which feels important to me. It is about that openness, and I think something I tried very hard to do, and which is why there are a lot of openings or wounds in the poem, or why there's a lot of flowering or blooming, you know, bleeding out from that bouquet. Like all of those languages and because those those were images for me and those were the part of that tension we talked about is like, if this matters to me, if these bodies, these beloveds, these people matter to me, I have to put my own body at stake to watch, to listen, to be present in a way that's not like this drive-by witness, which I realized is some of how the first book was interpreted. And and I was, I, I was at a greater distance. It was very different to write the second book at home where my brother might come to my door as he did in that poem. That poem is very much pulled from a real encounter with my real brother, Richie and me. And then of course he becomes the brother in that poem. And there's also something like one of the ways I was trying to toy with the animal is that I am also an animal, you know, and, and I mean that in a sense of like what I am capable of, of violence, or also like some of the ways that our identities are projected onto us as animals. And yet, what about those tendernesses we still need or the desires we still deserve? And so even the brother in that moment, I was trying to flip it as if the moment where I might judge him for what was happening to him was also a part of that 
kind of constellation of the animals in that it was the brother and it was the speaker who were both a part of that terrible constellation of human relations. You know, so I was thinking a little bit about that as well. You know, like when that mindset kicks in to say like, oh, he's an animal or, oh, this is, he's terrible or that's a really shameful moment. And to me, that's the moment where I've kind of pushed myself to one extreme of human relationship, whereas I would like to hold myself in a different kind of tenderness of that extreme. And then I I think I also, this, this might seem like a leap, but I spent so much time with all the different narratives I could find of Noah's Ark. And, and so there's something very literal about the animals. It was the animals I couldn't take. Like, it was also like what is left behind. So what I couldn't bear and also what I couldn't take and carry. And that there was no way I could carry my brother to a kind of safety in that moment. And so, you know, there was a little bit of like a, I don't know, I was maybe being a bit too clever with some of that flip-flop, which, you know, I think doesn't manifest in the end, but, you know, or in at least the the reading of the poem. But yeah, it. I appreciate you talking about that kind of like opening because I think this was one of those, like it was like a gaping that ended up happening. And I, I still remember the real life moment and emotionally how I felt. I did feel a bit wrecked and I did feel like, you know, have you ever just felt, so emotionally opened up that like your skin hurts, maybe like you're, you're exposed, you know, or like, I think about this a lot. It's a, it's a literal feeling I have, but like you see it on movies sometimes, like where like the pressure is so, so immense in a small space that like the windows break open and the, the curtains get sucked out. And it's just like a, like it makes a sound that's like, and that kind of gaping, I guess, I still remember it, some of how I felt. I think that's the crazy thing about the poems is some days when I read them, it's like I'm there again and I feel sick or I feel really hurt or I feel, you know, that same kind of like, I guess that gaping. But yeah, that was a really, it was a, I remember the turn happening in my revision where it's like, oh, you know, they're marching into, to me, they're marching into him. Like we're, this life is kind of marched into us and what exists of any kind of salvation for either of us at this point in relationship to being brothers and sisters to one another. So. Thank you for that. It's definitely a familiar feeling and it relates, I think, to what you said about the connections between your body and the ball between light and darkness. It seems that in the world that you reproduce in these poems, we all move through the medium of each other. It's all one mass and we're held in balance and, and sometimes in tension in that mass. And that brings up for me, a, a, I'm often translating things and, and that brings up the question of, of translation and of language and how languages are held in balance in the work. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your use of a variety of languages in your poem, uh, in your poems that are predominantly English, but are very much your idiolect. So maybe you can talk, talk about that as well as about your, your work in language preservation. Yeah. Again, like the language is such a physicality, I think, and it's, it's a kind of touch. And I do feel lucky to have that perspective of it because I think it, it's a generous perspective, you know, to, to be able to appreciate 
misunderstandings, mishearing something. I think also just being around my elders who I've worked with on the Mojave language, trying to, you know, there's, it's crazy because there aren't really words that can express, like to preserve it, to conserve it, to, you know, revitalize it. Like none of the words can really hold what's happening, like the loss of it. And so to have seen them try really hard to give me, to give other people in my community a language they know they're the only ones who hold and that they know is a way to imagine a different future for my Mojave people, but also not just for us, like to imagine a different way of living because it it was made when we had a different way of living. And so to watch them get to a point where they don't remember the word for something or when they, you know, like this line my elder says kills me. And he he still says it when we get sometimes into certain points in a story or a conversation. And he's just like, you know, there's no one left for me to ask. You know, I, I wish I could tell you, but I don't know. And there's no one left for me to ask. And And I think that that just makes me realize how lucky it is to work in poetry or to be a poet. It's you know, I know we we fight hard to say poetry is not a luxury, you know, which has been said by some of the greatest minds in our American history. And yet it is, and it shouldn't be, because it's such a lucky, lucky thing to be able to access your imagination as a way to understand, like, you deserve things like love and tenderness, or you're capable of offering things like love and tenderness, which... I think are very much rooted in the imagination, you know, that we, maybe one of the ways I'm thinking about what working with my elders has taught me is that there's so much left unimagined. That's where I want to live. Like if I can get to those places of what it means to care for somebody or to fight for somebody that are yet to be imagined spaces, like that's where I hope I eventually get to. And I think languages hold some of that when we let them move backward, when we realize that they can only move forward as much as as we're willing to travel backward in them to see like who they're carrying and what they're carrying and to remember the lands or waters that shaped them, you know, and shaped the bodies who first spoke them and what that means of relationality and relationship. I think that you know, we talk a lot about relationality now. It's kind of a blanket term. It's like, we're all connected. And yet I think like the real task is trying to find that touch that is the connection. And language to me feels like just a generous touch because it's not only what the words and languages have already touched, but it's how we might touch one another in the future and be alongside one another. And so for me, like, a lot of the words I move in and out of is just because I, again, I spend so much time in etymology and my Mojave language demands so much of English. And so I think there's a way that, you know, I mentioned this word excess before, and we were talking about abundance, but I think there's a way that excess operates in my work and that the kind of love or care or imagination I'm trying to uh, look through from the ways I've learned to be Mojave the Mojave language demands that English just do more. 
and be more. And, and I don't think there's, I mean, there's a lot of lack in every language, but the English language is a beautiful language. And yet it's had very specific designs. You know, it, it's designed to, to carry people to certain places or to deny people certain things or to build certain kinds of edifices and all of these like structures of power or city or citizen. And so I feel like you know, one lucky thing about the way Mojave carries me through or into or in the periphery of English is that it really demands it do more. And so I always want to know what's the next word? What's the word that this is connected to? Like, what is the constellation of all of these things? And maybe I can get kind of close to what I think I might feel or what I don't know I feel yet. Again, a kind of circular answer, but I mean, these questions are so generous. I've I get so excited about thinking uh, forward and backward in some of these. So, and I'm on, I'm on campus. So normally I'm, my trajectory is very different. So it's nice to like feel, to feel nerdy with you all here where I don't have like, I'm not checking off things on my checklist. <laughs> I, I, I love your answer. And, and uh, on top of, um, uh, abundance and excess, the word that comes to mind is extravagance, the root of which is to walk outside, to wander around. And I think that that, oh, that, describes, yeah. that describes your your poems. Uh, I think I'll let Kelly ask the, the last question. <laughs> so much pressure. Well, I was thinking of when you were talking about a language potentially dying out or this idea of language becoming invisible, maybe. I was thinking of the end of Snake Light and this beautiful, chill-giving moment where the great-grandmother says, I gave you my name, I called you, and I watched her tongue like a whip of ink write my name in the air. And I just, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm interested in this theme of visibility or invisibility in the, in the poems. There's a, a declaration quite powerfully of let me be lonely, but not invisible. But then the speaker's name is invisible in some sense in this, in this gesture, but it feels somehow empowering. I'm wondering if you could talk about that theme and about this idea of writing a name in air and not having it articulated or transliterated in the poem. Yeah, that's a, again, a generous question. I think, I mean, I think we, we are all thinking, right, about visibility and invisibility and what part of visibility is simply someone else's projection of, of who they think you are. So you could be standing there and they might never see you because they've already projected, one, who, who they think you are, and two, who they think they are by the way they arrived to you. I, I think that's always interesting to me at a reading. I wonder sometimes, like, what are people really hearing and how much of it is just already an information that they came with, you know, that about nativeness or, or all of the things people think I am. I think there's also something about hypervisibility that can be as dangerous as invisibility, you know, again, like related to those, the idea of projection. I think half of what any of us ever are to somebody is projection, you know? And so how do you find ways to be alongside when that happens? And, and I, I think it's, it's possible that sometimes that's the only way that we can be, you know, I'm a little skeptical and I wouldn't even say I'm skeptical. I don't believe in empathy because I do think it's such a, a strong kind of projection of, of the self and what the self uh, is risking or what's at stake of the self, which we seem to think is the only 
only lens we can look at to imagine what might happen to someone else or what they might need or what has happened to them. Like, as you were saying, like the name written in the air and even, so I say my Mojave name, but even as I say it, I don't say the full name. I say only a piece of it, which is a name for me at home. It's, and so I think there's something about visibility and invisibility that, um, that I begin to understand through writing the book is that some knowledges are not for you. Some knowledges are not for me. Some knowledges are not for my reader. And yet I can still like, that's, I think half of writing poetry is that, you know, we get stuck with all these things like accessibility and, you know, do I understand? What does it mean? Do you get it? Kind of thing. I, my poor students, I'm always like dragging them, you know, putting them through the ringer about, you know, disclaimers and things like that. But I think that's, again, like one of the joys of language is that it's only ever our best estimate. You know, like it, it, it's not the body. And yet I'm trying hard to say what I might want or what I might feel. And then there, there has to be some knowing that you will never know how I feel. And yet together in some sort of constellation or some sort of alongsideness, we might find different ways to allow the other to have desire or to be free or to be fulfilled or, or to be, you know, sad even. And so I guess like, I really like being able to kind of comb back through, uh, through the poem with, with this question, you know, that, that you've offered Kelly, but also just the book and just the ways I've been thinking lately in general, because I think, I think that like, writing the name in the air, it's also saying that there is something beyond visibility. Like I don't have to wait for this country to acknowledge me in certain ways that I can still have a kind of fullness. There's still a story I'm a part of and that I can write, even though there may be some structural um, hierarchies that I might never fit into. You know, I mean, I'm again, I'm joining you all from my university office and I'm still trying to figure out what it means that I'm here, you know, and also realize it's lucky to be here. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something, you know, and I also this is one of just the luckiest things about language is like to, to be able to to hear and and. I don't want to assume that that's the only sensuality by which we can communicate. So I know that, of course, that there are people who, who have other ways of language that don't involve, you know, the ear and hearing. But to, to have your name called out by someone who loves you, you know, I think that's got to be one of the luckiest. It's so simple, but I, I, try, to, I try really hard to think about it or what it means for me to say the name of someone I love, whether it's across a room or in a... Even, you know, like in, even in a moment of frustration to know that, hey, there's an expectation here that we have. There's a reciprocity. There's a relationship by which we hold each other accountable. I mean, even still, like when my mother says my name, that's one of the luckiest things I can ever imagine. Or, or when I call a friend and say, like, this is Natalie. Or when they call me and say, you know, hey, it's Eliza. Like, even if it's a message, those are, yeah. And so I think in some ways, like, I wanted to play with the idea that that there are things beyond visibility, that there are presences that sometimes are more important than just visibility. And sometimes visibility is a little bit of a trick, you know, especially like I'm someone who checks boxes for people. 
you know, like I know if someone's like, oh, it's Indigenous Peoples Day and we need to talk to a native, I'm probably one of the one of a, a low number of people who come to their minds, you know. Um, and so, or a small number of people who come to their minds. But but yeah, so I think that there's something about the different kinds of presence and the different ways we can hold and carry one another that that poetry has really helped me kind of figure out and 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 learn which is, you know, it's pretty lucky. It's like, a, it, I guess it's like the, maybe the last thing I'll say is that writing poetry has really become a, a practice of the way I want to live and that I often fail at. And yet it's still there for me to come back and figure out like who I might be or how I might be, um, you know, how I might live within certain circumstances or how I might imagine beyond them. Well, thank you, Natalie, for your openness and for keeping our eyes open. Yeah, this is this has just been wonderful. Yeah, it's been my luck. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to a special conversation between the LAR Book Club and poet Natalie Diaz about Diaz's latest collection, Postcolonial Love Poem. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Vladen.